Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools are here every Saturday at 12 noon to defend and to support public education, and that is public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it is public in access. It is the right of every child to have a first-class public education in a democracy in which we pay taxes for that purpose. It is also or it should be, public in ownership and control. It's the only one that can be publicly accountable, so therefore it's the only one that should be publicly funded. And our governments, if they were genuine, representative, responsible governments in a democracy, would make sure that all of those things were possible. Well, we know that they've always had to be fought for, and that ever since public education was recognised as a right in the 19th century, the forces of reaction have tried to undermine it in every way possible, most particularly the private interest. And never before have the private interest profiteering motive been uh, on the march so obviously as we see at the present time. We have a web page at www.adogs.info and our press release 680 deals with, guess what, Donald Trump's presidency. What does it mean for public education? Supporters of public education, particularly those in education administrations themselves, have often been hamstrung by political proprieties and legal constraints. This means that private providers and religious lobbyists have more freedom for direct politicking. Consider recent experiences of members of the Education Department in the recent United States election. In speeches and appearance, Republican President-elect Trump called for more choice, ending Common Core, that is a centralised curriculum, and gutting of the Education Department itself. Trump's most substantial campaign proposal on education because there weren't too many uh, things that were specific in his uh, proposals, was a $20 billion grant program that he was going to use to encourage states to expand school choice. That is, giving parents more control over the kind of education their children receive, including through vouchers, charter schools and what he called magnet schools. 
The money was going to come from somewhere else in the federal budget, but it wasn't clear where he was going to get it from. Certainly not from any taxes that Mr Trump himself paid. In particular, Donald Trump said repeatedly during his campaign that he wanted to gut the Department of Education. Back in August, he said this, We want to bring education local so that we're going to be cutting the Department of Education big league because we're running our education from Washington, D.C., which is ridiculous. Instead of running it out of Miami or running it out of the different place that we have so many people. What did the Department of Education think about that? An internal memo released to Gizmodo on the 10th of November showed that the federal agency cautioned its employees not to say anything controversial about the election, especially about Donald Trump. And the memo referred to the 1939 Hatch Act. It's similar to uh, acts that we have here in Australia which say the public servants can't make political statements. Americans became acutely aware of the Hatch Act in the past month after the FBI Director James Coney made a surprise announcement just 11 days out of Election Day. His letter to Congress explained that the FBI was investigating emails found on Anthony Weiner's computer and it rankled Democrats, especially after it was discovered that they didn't include anything remotely scandalous. Supporters of Hillary Clinton pointed to a long-held tradition that forbids federal employees from trying to influence elections, and the Hatch Act of 1939 was in fact the formal law that banned that kind of interference. An emailed memo, first requested through a Freedom of Information Act request in May, was finally released today, and the memo specifically notes that media relations employees at the Department of Education, however, had received refresher training on this Hatch Act. So they were told that they were not to uh, react to uh, political statements, even if their jobs were on the line. Uh, The memo included talking points for the Department of Education employees who might be asked by members of the media about the election. And the talking points included two headers. Which Democratic candidate do you support and what do you think of Donald Trump? And the, the answer to both questions was supposed to be, I'm not here to discuss the candidates or the election. So the um, Department of Education people were... Uh, given uh, very good indications as to how they were to behave given the Hatch Act. But Americans who believed their pollsters and political commentators that Hillary Clinton would win the presidency are now saying that at the end of the day the joke was on them, the voters, and perhaps on the Department of Education which will no doubt face drastic cuts under a government controlled by Donald Trump and the Republicans in both the House and the Senate. So supporters of public education in their central administration in America played the political game according to the rules, even though the FBI itself broke those rules. And this leads the dogs to ask a crucial question. For those who support a liberal democracy, as we do, playing by the rules and public education are once again left with this perennial conundrum. 
How do those who support a genuinely liberal rather than a sectarian, illiberal education system deal with an opposition who are not constrained by or who feel quite free to break both the rules of law and those of civility? Because for the last 50 years, the dogs have been faced with this problem in the political arena in Australia. And now the Education Department over in Washington is confronted with the same problem. And the answer is, and it was given to me by Joe Toscano, actually, on Talkback this week. For those in the Protestant tradition, the answer is protest. And over in America, on the gloomiest morning of the year for public school supporters, there has been a successful protest against charter schools. And this is how Diana Ravitch tells it. This was on November the 9th. And it occurred the night before, on the 8th, which was in America... Election Day. For a short while in Boston last night, the email to Diane Ravitch said, we were ecstatic. We beat the privatisers on question two and we beat them across the state with every demographic except for the whitest, wealthiest towns. As Barbara Madaloni said from the stage at campaign headquarters, we beat their money with our democracy. Our coalition victory against the privatisers in Boston was hard-earned and sweet. Our brave and beautiful young people were inspirational. Barbara Madaloni was electrifying. We were the righteous students, parents and union members. And then, as the national results started coming in and it became clear that Clinton was in trouble, DFEO was spotted in the back of the hotel ballroom. It was Mary Waltz, the former state legislator turned paid chill for the charter industry. Some of us, of us, those who'd been door knocking, who had made calls, created charts, sent tweets, educated our neighbours, debated on stage, became angry. The yes on the two campaign, funded by the so-called Democrats with zero history on being on the side of working people and the disenfranchised, had forced us to focus on a state measure for months and months and months at the exclusion of the presidential campaign. Not a single one of my comrades working themselves to exhaustion, unpaid to defeat the ballot measure which was to imposed charter schools on Boston, not a single one of them was also volunteering for Hillary because they couldn't be in two places at once and we rightly felt the urgency of defeating question two. We were also cleanly aware that our colleagues in other parts of the country were counting on us to stop the charter tide in Massachusetts. So... Marty Waltz heard from us loud and clear. That was the person who had sold out to the charter industry. We let them know that their support for an expensive, divisive, diversionary campaign will not be forgotten. And question two and the charlatans behind it went down in flames on the same night as the election night and it was a bright spot in a very dismal morning. 
So over there in America, small things are still happening and eventually big things will happen. And uh, although the presidential polls were wrong and Clinton appeared to be headed for a big victory until FBI Director James Comey informed Congress he'd discovered a new trove of emails, um, and then, of course, he decided there was no problem on the Sunday before the Tuesday-Wednesday election. Um, she was never really able to revive the momentum after Comey's intervention. Uh, but this strange man, Trump, might control Congress and will select at least one and possibly two or three Supreme Court justices on the subject of education He's actually shown little interest, excepting that he himself has a failed private university which is supposed to produce real estate agents. But in Massachusetts, there was an overwhelming defeat of question two, which was um, about charters in Massachusetts by a margin of about 62% to 38%. And this question, too, would have permitted the addition of 12 charter schools every year into the indefinite future. Now, the people who wanted these charter schools, and this is very interesting because these charter schools, listeners, are coming to Australia and we have to fight them here too. The people who are looking to make a lot of money out of insecure middle-class parents spent at least $22 million promoting charter schools in Massachusetts and most of it from out-of-state donors. But the big givers were the billionaires and the hedge fund managers. And it was the first contest over charter schools in which the key issues have become public in America – the billionaire funding from out of state, the deceptive advertising that flooded the airwaves, the opponents' recognition that the charter movement was an assault on public schools and an effort to privatise them. So, although it was a very sad night for the nation, it was still heartening to see that the people defended their public schools in Massachusetts. So Joe Toscano gave me good advice last Thursday morning when he said, you protest. And we live in very interesting times. It's going to be interesting for public education in both America and Australia. We will settle down to fight for public education. You never say die in these matters. And it is a noble cause. Now, I've got some more good news. There was actually a win in Australia in October. There was, according to Save Our Schools, and Trevor Cobalt is up in Canberra, a win in the ACT election. We didn't get that much information in our media on the ACT election, did we? I wonder if it was because it was, surprisingly, a Labor Party win. The return of the Barr government was good news for Gonski and public schools due to their commitment to fighting for the full six years of Gonski. 
the ACT schools themselves would be 25 million worse off in 2018 and 19 alone if the federal government succeeds in its plan to abandon Gonski. The AEU ACT Secretary Glenn Fowler said that both the Labor and the Greens, who are likely to form a coalition to govern, had pledged to fight for the full six years of Gonski funding for the ACT, but the Liberals in the ACT had not committed to needs-based funding. So the AEU asked the three main ACT parties to sign a pledge which, if implemented, would deliver real outcomes for the ACT's public education systems and staff. Along with fighting for the full six years of Gonski, the pledge included at least 15 new school psychologists in the public school system, a guarantee that at least 70% of public VET funding should go to Canberra Institute of Technology, a continuation of funding provided in the 2015 to reduce workloads and cap class sizes, um, a promise to ensure delivery of promised school inf- infrastructure upgrades with heating and cooling solutions as a priority, and recognition that any government's priority must be made to public education. Mr Fowler said the Greens had led the way by signing the pledge in full and that Labor had shown good support. And Labor agreed to four of the six items in the pledge, although they've not been able to give a guarantee around the CIT funding or the school class sizes. The Greens' commitment to guaranteeing funding for the um, Canberra Institute of of Technology was in line with the AEU's policy around vocational education and it would give the Canberra Institute of Technology much-needed certainty around its future funding. But the Liberals, of course, failed to support the pledge and had only committed to one of the items, namely infrastructure funding. So it's perennially puzzling why the Liberals talk the talk about support for public education but then fall far short when it comes to listening to the expressed needs of the profession. So we live in very interesting times, uh, listeners. Uh, We have seen in both America and in Britain that large sections of the population no longer believe in the trickle-down effect and they don't care very much what happens on Wall Street or in the share market when there are elections either. But that's enough for me for the moment. Uh, We'll have a bit of music and then Robert is here to give uh, you some information.
Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. Yes, it's Robert back in the studio here. After my travellings around researching for the Dogs Program, I've come back home to Collingwood to tell you what I found. Oh, that was a bit of Monteverdi, by the way. It's lovely. Sort of break up the terrible news that we've had to report on so far. Um, as Jean was mentioning over in the United States, they are now starting to have problems. Um, Jean, as you know, who comes from the protest ant tradition, is now talking about the protests that are inevitable when confronting situations in the United States that they are, and also here, what is likely to manifest itself in Australia within the political system, and indeed the educational political system, because you can't talk about education in Australia without talking about politics. It's a bit stupid. There's a lot of countries around the world where you can talk about ed- education without talking about politics, but Australia, um, for all sorts of interesting historical and religious reasons, is not one of those places. Now, as Jim was mentioning in the ACT, Trevor Cobalt from Save Our Schools um, was reporting on the sort of political educational mix that's going on up there with their local ACT elections. But Trevor Cobalt and the Save Our Schools movement and the dogs agree on many, many things, but not all things. And it's interesting um, because recently the Save Our Schools organisation have kind of restated their manifesto as opposed to the dog's manifesto. And if you're interested in what we believe, um, just tune into the beginning of this podcast and you'll hear because Jean always says what it is that the dogs stand for. Jean, what is it that the dogs stand for again? We stand for public education, which is public in purpose and outcome. Public in access, public in ownership and control, and public in funding, sole public funding, because it is publicly accountable. That's right. And there's many people in Australia that what we think that what we say, what we talk about, is crazy. It's politically impossible. That means, of course, that it should be state aid for state schools only, Which? not for private religious schools. That's right. And the Save Our Schools organisation have a slightly different take on the matter, not the same as the dogs. And as I say, just recently, on November 10th, the Save Our Schools organisation restated their point of view. Now, Trevor Cobalt and the Save Our Schools organisation do a sterling job up in Canberra, and we often refer to their hard-won research in the area of public education. But um, it would be worth pointing out that from their point of view, in a very simple sense, private schools do not have an entitlement to taxpayers' funding. That is what they believe. And if you take it at face value, that's exactly what the dogs believe as well. As well, they say there is a, but they say there is a good case for government funding of private schools, whose resources are below what is needed to ensure an adequate education for all children. Now, what they're saying there is that if a private school sets itself up and does not provide adequate resources to its children, then it's the government's job to solve that problem for the private school. Now, here at the Dogs, we don't believe that's the case. If a private education provider sets up a school and is not capable of providing education, effective education for the students in that private school, then the government should definitely step in, not to give it money, but to tell it to close down. Because because that's an unconscionable situation. Um, If a private school sets up and says, oh, I'm afraid we don't have enough money to teach the kids properly, it's the government and regulators' job to say, well, then you can't have a private school. Um, it's just that simple. If you're not capable of doing it properly, then um, don't do it at all. 
It's just like setting up yourself up as a plumber. If you can't do any plumbing, um, you can't be a plumber. If you can't do any electrical work, you can't be an electrician. If you can't set up a school that can effectively educate people, um, then you can't be an educator. That's just that simple. So that's the point of view. But it's worth going on um, without, you know, certainly not dismissing the SOFO schools because they do such a sterling job in the, in the sector. They do say that governments have a responsibility to ensure that children educated in the private sector are not disadvantaged in their access to quality education by their parents' choices. Well, here at Dogs, we fundamentally disagree with that, as we said. But they say, similarly, disadvantaged students, such as low SES, Indigenous, remote area, and disability students, should be entitled to the same funding loading whether they attend private or public schools. Well, again, here at the Dogs, we actually fundamentally disagree with that. But they do go on to say, and this is where we start to have a meeting of minds, the State of Our Schools organisation, who say that we should, in fact, generously give money to private schools if they're not doing a good enough job, I would suggest, and Jean would suggest, in many cases, not doing a good enough job on purpose, so they can get the money. Um, But the State of Our Schools organisation go on to say, private schools whose private sourced income exceeds a community standard, such as school resource standard, or the SRS, used for the Gonski funding model, should not, should not be entitled to baseline funding from governments. That is to say, no money. The argument that all children, including those attending high-fee, exclusive schools, are entitled to government assistance for their education is indeed a spurious argument, they say. Government funding compounds their large resource advantage over public schools. Now, they say the entitlement argument for public funding of private schools serves to support advantage and privilege in education outcomes. Taxpayer funding should not be directed at providing some students with additional advantages over and above those available by virtue of a privileged family background. Now, to devote public resources to extending the advantage of a student from a wealthy background over a student from a disadvantaged background is to actually enhance social inequity. I would step out of what they say, and I would say it goes, it goes further than that. It is to create social inequity. It is to create a class structure. It is to create intergenerational inequality. That is the purpose if there ever is a purpose, to putting public resources to extending the advantage of students from wealthy backgrounds. Now, Trevor Cobalt and the people at Save Our Schools say, and I do agree, that such use of taxpayer funds provides even greater opportunities for the privileged to gain the intrinsic reward of education, such as access to economic resources, as well as positions of social status and power in society. It means that scarce funds are diverted from serving those with high learning needs to those with few needs. Government funding for private schools can only be justified on the basis of need, they say. Those with annual fees of $20,000 or more a year are not, by definition, in need of support by the government. Now this, in fact, structurally gets back to the needs policy which Jean has spoken about on many occasions here on the DOGS program, 
the needs policy is not something that we accept as a useful structural guide to how you use the resources of the taxpayer when it comes to education. Trevor Cobalt and people at SOS do think it has some use and perhaps at some future point we'll perhaps um, coalesce on this and they might come a little bit closer to the dog's position as they have been doing over the years. Now, from their point of view, and probably from our point of view too, families, people, whatever it is that a man and woman and child and family and student and parent, they actually have the right to seek a particular education for their children outside the public system. Here at the Dogs, we believe that to be true as well. If you're a parent and you want to educate your system uh, and educate your child in a particular education system that has peculiar or interesting religious or, or whatever beliefs, quite frankly, you can go for your life. But this choice may be directed, of course, at religious-based education or alternative philosophies of education or specialist educations in music and arts and perhaps um, other, other, other fields, um, acquiring position of status, good or entrance to a social network for instance if you wanted to go to a, a wealthy prime um, um, a wealthy private school a particular behavior or dress code or indeed some other goal all of these are in fact from even from the dog's point of view if you want to send your child to a school that provides these things then you should go for your life um, school fees are in fact the price that a family and a student pay for this choice it is not the responsibility of governments to fund this choice. Instead, it is the responsibility of governments to ensure that every child is able to achieve an adequate education and to improve equity in educational outcomes. A related argument employed by defenders of government funding for elite private schools is that families whose children attend these schools are entitled to government funding because they pay taxes. This is a spurious argument. The purpose of taxation is to provide services to benefit the society. People who do not avail themselves of publicly provided services are not thereby entitled to claim a certain proportion of taxation revenue to fund their private choices. This is not the purpose of taxation. All citizens pay taxes for community services, such as public transport, police, paramedics, fire brigades, libraries, garbage removal, street repairs and public education, regardless of whether or not they use public transport, the police, paramedics, fire brigades, libraries, garbage removal, street repairs or indeed public education. Governments do not subsidise families if they choose to use their own car instead of catching a tram or a train. They don't subsidise private security arrangements to protect people's homes instead of relying on the police. Um, or use private recreation and leisure facilities such as a backyard pool instead of a public swimming pool. Or buy their own books instead of using public libraries. Now, I think this argument has been run many times. And it's interesting that Save Our Schools are running it at this time. It is a, I think, self-evident argument. Now, they add that there is another argument of the defenders of taxpayer funding for well-off and elite private schools, and that it saves the government money, because students in these schools get less government funding than those in public schools.
Now, it is true that government funding of well-off private schools is, is on average less per student than funding for students in public schools. Although there are many cases where private schools receive not less, but more government funding than public schools. However, in the, in the views of the Save Our Schools organisation, who are restating these things at this time, this is no justification for the government funding of private schools. Far from saving the government's money, funding of well-off private schools adds unnecessary cost to governments because it is actually not based on need, and there are several forms of overfunding of private schools at the moment. One is where per student's income from fees and donations of wealthy private schools exceeds the base standard. In these cases, government funding is not needed in these schools to achieve the base standard of funding, and it extends the resource advantage and creates equity. A similar form is where private schools use income from private sources. Now, this income from private sources to private schools is not something we at the dogs can find out about. It's not a matter of public record. It's not a matter that goes up on the My School website. It's not something that we can find out about because it is indeed commercial in confidence. But where the income comes from fees and donations in wealthy private schools, um, this extends, again, the difference and the inequity. Now, these private sources... Um, whose basis per capita grants provides them with a higher average total income per student than the base standard. The extra government funding also gives these schools a resource advantage over public schools because the government, when they allocate funding to private schools, don't know how much money is coming in from these other private sources. Now, the level of overfunding from these two <coughs> forms in the, is the aggregate of the difference between the base per capita grant for each private school and the funding that will be required to equalise the total average income students and, in course, the base SRS standard. It is difficult to estimate the actual amount of overfunding because the relevant data, as Trevor Cobalt says, is not readily available. It is opaque. We can't find out. We just don't know. Particularly from school systems that are block-funded. Now, when he talks about school systems that are block-funded, he is, in fact, and I'm, I'm sorry to say this, but Trevor, you can actually just say it, um, it's the Catholic education system because they are block-funded by the government to the Catholic education office in each state and then from that office, funds are allocated to individual schools um, and as the Auditor-General here in Victoria and the Federal Auditor-General found out, um, this allocation is immensely opaque and demonstrably unfair. Now, an approximate estimate of the money overfunded can be obtained by comparing the excess of total government funding over the amount that would be required to equalise average total income per student in private and public schools. Well, thank you, Robert. I think that the Save Our Schools people in their own inimitable way are eventually going to reach the dog's position. Uh, if you want to um, sup with the devil, you take a very, very long spoon. <laughs> and uh, once you give money to private enterprise, uh, corruption is on the way because you don't know what happens to it. For example, uh, we discover 
with this uh, very interesting man, Mr Day from Family First, who is no longer in the Senate, that the Turnbull government is under pressure to explain why it gave $2 million to a small trades training college in suburban Adelaide linked to financially stricken former Senator Bob Day. A one-off grant was more than the annual revenue of the North North East Vocational College, an institution with seven classrooms. The $1.84 million was handed to the college, chaired for a decade by Mr Day, and equates to 90000 for each of the 20 construction apprentices involved in a four-year trial of Mr Day's pet project, Student Builders. wonder if they were involved in his building industry. <laughs> the equivalent certificate for in construction and building at TAFE costs just $3,000 per student per year. So Mr Day's college was handed the same sum at the same time as two industry bodies, Master Builders Australia and the National Electricians and Communications Associations, which have promised to benefit hundreds of apprentices across Australia with the funds. The grants were given under the Apprenticeship Training Alternative Delivery Pilot Scheme. The NECA Chief Executive, Suresh Manikam, this is Mr Day's uh, man, I gather, said that the $1.84 million his group received would benefit up to 300 apprentices in categories including enhanced training, mentoring and attracting female and mature age apprentices. Questions are being asked about the process that led to Mr Day's idea being rewarded with public money, nearly $500,000 more than he asked for with both Labor and the Electrical Trades Union claiming the money was tied to Mr Day's enduring support for the government's agenda while he was a senator. Documents obtained through the Freedom of Information show that Mr Day's 2015 pitch promised the Student Builders Program would bring trade training into line with other forms of tertiary education, such as nursing and teaching. But in essence, the program was designed to shift the financial burden for apprentices from builders to the publicly backed education sector. Under Mr Day's proposal, students at the North East Vocational College would be forced to fork out tens of thousands of dollars in loans under the government's scandal-ridden vet fee help scheme. And that would boost the school's budget by hundreds of thousands of dollars on top of the grant authorised by the former Minister for Vocational Education and Training, Luke Hartsoika, but initially negotiated by Simon Birmingham, who's the current Education Minister. So uh, when you're dealing with private providers, corruption is just around the corner. And we also find uh, the New South Wales... uh, Teachers Federation has been doing some work and discovered that some very interesting paper by Curtis B. Riep of the University of Alberta, Canada on the charter school movement in the Philippines. Now, we've mentioned Pearson PLC and uh, before because they're very much into uh, commercialising testing, particularly in the United States and in the UK and now in Australia. But uh, this gentleman from the University of Alberta has produced a lot of material on what is actually happening in the Philippines, which is not very far from Australia. 
Corporate sector influence and participation in public sector education is on the rise globally. But as the global demand for quality basic education grows more rapidly than government provision and supply, private corporations have entered the sector to both fill the governance gap and pursue new commercial opportunities in education. As a result, the transnational corporations have increasingly become influential, yet unaccountable. They become actors, partners, providers, entrepreneurs and enablers of governmental logics and processes connected to neoliberal globalisation that continues to transform education into a sector guided by market principles, financial imperatives and capital accumulation strategies. However, By treating education as a commodity that's privately provided through market mechanisms rather than as a publicly redistributed and decommodified societal good, in various contexts, education is increasingly becoming a source of social disparity and inequity. Surprise, surprise. Uh, We've seen that with our own private sector for a long time. But listen to this. On April the 24th, 2013, the Philippines Department of Education, the DEP-ED, along with Pearson, which is the largest education company in the world, and Ayala Corporation, which is one of the largest business conglomerates in the Philippines, signed a Memorandum of Understanding, which stated, With the passage of the Enhanced Basic Education Act of 2013, mandating the introduction of grades 11 and 12, there is an urgent need to provide affordable quality education to millions of the Filipino children of secondary school age, whose only option at present is to enrol in an overcrowded public school. The MOU, which is the Memorandum of Understanding, further adds that in the Philippines, the Constitution recognises the complementary roles of public and private institutions in the educational system and the unequivocal declaration by the state of the necessary role which private education plays in society. In 2014, over 7.2 million students were enrolled in public and private secondary schools in the Philippines, 5.9 million in public and 1.3 in private. However, several hundred thousand Filipino youth still remain out of secondary school and an overburdened and under-resourced system unable to accommodate all students effectively will soon have to provide two more additional years of senior high school. So what are they doing? They are providing a for-profit chain of low-cost private high schools, grades 7 to 12. It currently serves more than 1,500 students in 12 schools in Metro Manila. But it's going to double its chain to 24 schools by 2015-16. And then Pearson, through its venture capital fund, the Pearson Affordable Learning Fund, along with Ayala Corporation through its edgy business arm, will have created a new corporate entity that will manage and scale the secondary school chain. Pearson and Ayala have agreed to invest up to 400 million 
between 2013 and 18 in order to scale the chain through a pilot of 50 low-cost private high schools. Well, in uh, Australia for some time, we've had low-cost private schools uh, provided by the religious sector, but they're not low-cost, are they? They're not low-cost to the taxpayer, and these will not be low-cost to the taxpayer either. These corporations are not there for the public good. They are there to make money. And uh, they are not an answer to any country's educational problem. The only answer to a democracy's problem, of course, is a good public education system. just heard a really disturbing term in that paragraph, edu-business. Yes, (laughs) edu-business. Oh, yes, yes, there's plenty plenty of, of words. I'm sure there will be a whole new words, but... Listeners, we are here talking about our children and our grandchildren. We are talking about what these people want from our children and our grandchildren. And if you read further about what they are going to provide and the curriculum they're going to provide, they are directly related to the big business operators of the, of the Philippines and we know what kind of business and what kind of workers' treatment they, um, they engage in in the Philippines. Um, I wonder if they are going to be, uh, well, I was almost going to say um, providing for the sex workers and others, but um, I won't go there at the moment. No, we won't, we won't go there. We'll have a short break now and... Uh, We'll be back with some very interesting news later. Friends of the Earth invites you to our annual art auction. On Friday, 25th of November, join us at Arena Project Space, 2 Kerr Street, Fitzroy, for Earth, a live and silent auction of art for Earth's sake. Viewing, bar, food and live music from 530 auction begins at seven invite your friends family and colleagues to help fund our national nuclear free campaign and celebrate 40 years of holding back the nuclear industry and working for a clean energy future friends of the earth is a 3cr supporter celebrate international day of people with disabilities all day saturday 3rd of december with 3CR. The word disability is so broad now and it's come so far. There's so much ability within disability these days. Join us from 12 to 4pm for local news and views from the city of Yarra. Freedom and safety are two of the most important values shared by our community. As the largest independent human rights organisation for refugees and people seeking asylum in Australia, the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre delivers more services on the ground and more free hours of support to where it's needed most. A donation of $20 to the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre provides two weeks of food for a family over the holiday season. Please donate now at asrc.org.au or call 1300-DONATE. The Asylum Seeker Resource Centre is a proud 3CR supporter. Welcome back to the Dogs Program on 3CR, the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools. Uh, This is Dale here, and I've got an article that Jean's given to me by uh, Fairfax Media columnist Wendy Squires, entitled, 
Too many religious institutions consider themselves beyond reach. Christian Porter announced a national scheme to compensate victims of child sexual abuse, but a clause in the scheme allows the state states and institutions at blame to opt out of contributing. As someone who's followed the Child Sex Abuse Royal Commission with horror and fury, my desire, make that a demand, has been consistent. Make them pay. My greatest fear was that those innocents whose dignity, self-esteem and human rights were ripped away by those who they trusted would be abused all over again in their quest for justice. The retelling of their stories would be mere fodder for a news cycle and then, once the, co- the hearings concluded, we would all tut-tut and go our merry way, grateful that times have changed and the culpable institutions had learnt a lesson. But justice has arrived, for living victims at least. Last Friday, the Social Services Minister, Christian Porter, allowed a national compensation scheme with payments to victims of up to $150,000. One entity would process claims with federal backing, thus cutting red tape. I was jubilant, but I kept reading and my anger returned. Not only is the maximum amount 50000 lower than the Commission's suggested cap, but a clause allows states and institutions at blame to opt out of contributing. Talk about a kiss followed by a kick. This is immoral. Allowing the wealthy religious institutions that committed heinous crimes against children to have an option to pay or not is obscene. Care Leavers Australia Network's Network's Chief Executive, Leonie Sheedy, says compensation from the states and institutions responsible should be mandatory, given that many of the religious institutions have a poor track record of supporting people who are abused. She also raises a very interesting argument. Any charity or religious organisation that refuses to contribute to the scheme should lose their tax-exempt status. Hallelujah. The issue of tax exemption has for far too long been unquestioned and the government won't be keen to revisit the issue given the party is run by a handful of right-wing Christian fanatics. But it's time this ridiculous indemnity was debated. Under Australian law, religious organisations are deemed charitable and thus exempt from tax, which adds up to an estimated $30 billion. Catholic Church accounts for about half annually. To be considered as charitable, the institution should provide the relief of poverty, the advancement of education, the advancement of religion and other purposes beneficial to the community. However, in 2014, a Charities Act was introduced expanding the statutory definitions of charity and charitable purpose to recognise the other attributes, including advancing health, education, social or public welfare, religion, culture, reconciliation, mutual respect and tolerance, promoting or protecting human rights, advancing of advancing the security or safety of Australia or the public, preventing or relieving the suffering of animals and advancing the natural adv- environment. All of these are supposed to be for the public benefit and as such are accepted as charitable and exempt from tax from certain taxes. And fair enough, in most cases, their public benefit is duly noted. Yet religious institutions such as the Catholic Church are also campaigning against same-sex marriage, excluding women in their hierarchies, teaching that homosexuality is immoral, backing campaigns against 
against legal abortion rights, perpetuating the nonsense that that is creationism, scaring children with threats of hell and damnation, preaching virgin births, sea partings and resurrection. Can this work be deemed charitable and of public benefit? Where the money goes to hospitals, refuges and the like, no tax should be required. But the income from massive property portfolios and related investments, really? And consider Scientology, created by a science fiction author, L. Ron Hubbard, which decrees that 75 million years ago, a dictator called Xenu brought billions of people, of his people to Earth in a spacecraft and dropped them in volcanoes and then blew them up with hydrogen-like bombs. The spirits of those aliens called Thetans, inhabit humans and can only be eradicated by spending thousands of dollars to become clear. This institution, too, is tax-exempt. A recent documentary, Going Clear, reported that it's worth $1.75 billion US, $2.2 billion globally, and takes in about US $200 million a year. Meanwhile, Hillsong Church pulled in an estimated $100 million last year, all tax-exempt because it's a religious institution. Similarly, the huge sanitarian health and wellbeing company, owned wholly by the Seventh-day Advent- Adventist Church, doesn't pay tax on the $205 million it earned last year alone. Are these institutions really for the public benefit and thus des- deserving of tax indemnity? The Royal Commission has provided an excellent opportunity to look closely at just what the charitable and public interest output of religious institutions really covers. Too many of them have considered themselves untouchable in the past, and it's time to make them pay. Now, that was an article by Wendy Squires of Fairfax. We'll have a little break now and we'll be right back with the end of Dogs. For three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm a proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's still not good enough that kids with disability miss out. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Well, it's bye for now. Um, Thank you for having us into your kitchens and your dining rooms, uh, wherever your radio is, or it might even be in your car this afternoon. And we will be back next week at 12 noon. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Dogs Program, Defence of Government Schools, here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. And, of course, if you're interested in what we've been talking about over the last hour, you can check us out. We're not hiding. You can check us out on our website at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. But thank you for your attention. We are pleased uh, to have an audience, and we know we have one out there, so we salute you. Um, The fight goes on, because it must do. But until next week, when we return to the battle, it's bye for now.
saw Joey last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe says I, him standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe, but I'm dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I, takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, I didn't die. Says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill went on to organize. Went on to organize from San Diego up to Maine in every mine and mill where workers strike and organize. It's there you find your hill. It's there you find.